tetragrammaton. As a designer, describe the uh, work environment that you came into when you were starting. I was entering a world where there was a movement from calling commercial art graphic design. And that was something that I learned at Tyler School of Art. Now, when I was in high school, I thought that was called commercial art, things that were signs, things that were record covers, things that were book jackets, that was all part of a thing. And there was something in the word commercial that was a little bit of a put down. Mm -hmm. There was a, a designer uh, named Dwiggins from the 20s who had coined the term graphic design and that if you were making graphic design, you were a graphic designer. So when, in entering that, there was uh, an understanding that you were moving to a higher level profession in terms of the way you might be perceived, though most people didn't know that yet. And that the world that I entered was the world of the 60s. And, you know, there were a lot of political posters. There were Vietnam War protests. There were uh, things that were, you know, from Haight-Ashbury. There was Victor Moscoso, an incredible designer who actually was Yale graduated and studied with Alpers on color theory and then was doing the wildest, most outrageous behavior that we all loved. Wow. And that was, in the, that was in the music business. It was the Phil Maurice type posters. And then there were a whole pile of, of, of devotees and followers. And this guy's still around, by the way. He's quite wonderful. Incredible. And then there is my husband and Pushpin and Milton Glaser, Seymour Quast and Ed Sorrell. And they, were, they, they came at it from an illustration point of view, but Seymour drew an alphabet called from a, a, an ink uh, box design he had done where he had made an A that looked like an ink drip. And it became like a 60s typeface. It was called R-Tone. And people didn't know it. it was really from a commercial job he had done. And it became this alphabet that I thought, because I didn't know him when I first saw it, I thought it was an analogous to bell-bottom pants because it was thin on the top and wide on the bottom. And I thought it was a hippie type because it went with the fashion. So cool. But that was the world. And tell me about, world. like, were the offices like we'd see in Mad Men? <laughs> that was the advertising business, which was, I think, very different from graphic design and tone and tempo. Those guys wore suits to work and they were uh, much more clean scrubbed and they were dealing with big corporate clients and they would spend a lot of time in meetings and, you know, they had bottles of scotch on their wall. I remember going around to those offices and even later when I worked with Gray Advertising doing their corporate headquarters, I saw that still there. There was still the whiskey bottle sitting on the, on the countertop for, you know, like a 5 p.m. snort or whatever that was. There's still lived. that relationship, though, between graphic design and advertising. It feels like they're related modalities, No. Well, I think they're described as, as being in that realm of uh, creation for business, but they really function very differently, and what they supply is different. What's, they've become more confused lately because uh, 
a lot of television advertising went away. So they're, they're, they've begun to sell identity and they, they sell it very different than design firms do because they're really looking to get the identity as a means to get whatever the promotion and the advertising is. But identity is foundational. And theoretically, if you're designing an identity for a corporation, you want it to last 20 to 40 years. You don't want to turn it around like Instagram. So, so there, are two, there are two fields coming at it sort of with opposite directions. So graphic design is something that you want to have a timeless appeal, whereas advertising is really more of, a, of the moment. It's to catch your attention now. And tomorrow, if, it's, if, tomorrow if it feels old, it's okay because it's only for today. Is that, would you say that's right? I think that's what happens. I don't think that that's the intent. I think it's the nature of the way they do their business. Because the thing is that if I think about companies I've worked with, and I have logos that are around, you know, for 25 years, going on 30 and some, and they, uh, they, are, they are foundational because they're designed not really to go out of style. Sometimes they have to be tweaked. Sometimes you, you design something and the, the weight is fashionable, say, of typography in a given period, and then five or six years later, it changes, and that you do need to tweak and adjust because you don't want it to look dated. It's like, a, like clothing, you know, hems go up and down. But theoretically, there's got to be something in the logo that is inherently recognizable. And what happens is that with the advertising agencies, they want to define what the positioning statement is and the theme of the organization when an organization is new or it has a new president, and that might last only five years. So then whatever they design in that capacity becomes irrelevant, where if you're looking for a, I would say, more of an abstraction of form and less about style, you can make something that's really lasting because people recognize it. And then if it has to be adjusted, it's very minor. And, you know, the Coca-Cola has a, a module of how you're supposed to think about these things. Like in the Coca-Cola logo, essentially, was designed in the 1800s. Wow. I mean, there really, there really is, is, a, is a, a script that was designed that's evolved over the years to be the way you see Coca-Cola today. And that in their quadrant, they say that the logo is sacrosanct and it stays forever. And that's in the upper left-hand part of the quadrant. In the upper right-hand part of the quadrant is uh, packaging. And packaging stays for a period of time enough to become recognizable, but has to evolve in style or, or form or various things so it keeps it, it keeps it contemporary. Then below it is advertising. And advertising can be seasonal or it can, can, uh, can adjust to be very uh, quick if you need to in certain instances if you're launching a new product with it. And there, the logos in the corner are never, never changed. And on the, on the package, the logos are never changed. And then, though they have Coke and Coca-Cola, they've added devices to it. And then in the following uh, quadrant is promotion. And promotion is the quickest changing thing, and that's Instagram. So something like the Coca-Cola green, uh, the green bottle of Coca-Cola, that was what a Coke bottle looked like for a really long time. It was a design choice they stuck with it for a period of time, and then somebody decides either we don't want to use glass bottles anymore and we're going to tin cans, or what happens when there's a decision to make a big change in a brand that's ubiquitous? I would imagine it's cost. You know, I mean, I think usually when there's that kind of a, of a shift, 
you're dealing with, and also convenience. I mean, it may be that that the glass was breaking or that kids couldn't handle it. I mean, I, I'm not inside Coke. I happen to have known that thing because I, I worked on a, a product that Coca-Cola produced called Trevia, and that's the first time I saw the chart. But I don't actually know the the, the mechanisms of the corporation. But I would I would guess from other corporations, when you make a decision like that to fundamentally change something that's classic, then you do it because of cost issues. And that I, I think the glass bottles still exist, but I think they become more promotional and they become this thing that they're putting out as specialty items, you know, like anniversary bottles. I mean, companies that have legacies do that. You know, I worked, I worked for Tiffany and uh, they have this very firm model. And what I did when I worked for them in the 90s was pick their blue color swatch that they already had, but it had to be universal because they distribute the product all over the world and the, the dye lots would change depending upon where you bought the box. So that was something that had to be controlled very tightly. And that they had very big typography initially when I worked for them on their boxes and it made them look cheap and I just made it really small on the box. And it sort of changed the whole look. It looked like you could raise the price. Wow. Just by those sort of adjustments, because there, there are cues you learn in terms of how things fit in categories and what expectations are. I mean, that's part of uh, working in commerce. Uh, it, has, it also has to do with aesthetics to a degree, you know, because it's sort of a statement of a certain kind of taste. But was there a time that the large Tiffany logo made sense? I'll tell you, I... When I saw the packaging, I was really, I was really shocked. They had, at the time that they hired me, they, they had worked, they worked mostly with manufacturers and the people who, you know, ran the jewelry stores were just sort of making the decisions. They had a blue, but the blue wasn't, their big problem with it was it didn't look the same in all places. So that was one problem. But then they had made decisions that were sort of surprising on something that's essentially an upscale product. And they had a they had a ribbon, not a ribbon. It was some kind of cord they had that was really fat and looked sort of clunky on their shopping bags. And then they had the very big type on things. And if, essentially, if you look at a Tiffany ad, you don't even see the logo. They use the blue box, and they have a white ribbon around it, and that's their classic. Never have to change that. Isn't that fantastic? Absolutely. You worked at Columbia. I guess you worked at CBS Records for a period of time. Yes. And was this in the seventies? Yes. Describe that environment. Well, it was very male. Um, I was one of very few women on the floor. I worked, I worked there twice. I worked in the advertising department first for about two years, and I was making ads for records. And that's where I learned everything I know about office politics. And then I had designed an ad campaign that the head art director at Atlantic Records liked, and uh, he hired me, and I got to do ads and record covers because they were done in the same department. So that's when I just start, started designing album covers. And I did them for a year, and they, they won awards and gotten some design annuals and things like that. So I was hired back by uh, an art director named John Berg to be East Coast art director. What were some of the covers you did when you were at Atlantic? Charles Mingus Changes 1 and 2, wow. which are kind of classics. Uh, John Prine, Common Sense. Wow. Then there were, there were artists like Dee Dee Bridgewater, who, people, you know, who were like lesser known. It's funny because I just went through them uh, because I'm giving some work to a museum in Munich. 
and there were I, there were 25. I can't remember them all. There was a guy named uh, I think his name was uh, maybe Steve Wright. There were you know sort of odd, but not big. They weren't big, and they were they were jazz musicians and and quite good. And I did a lot of jazz work at CBS as well. So I, at CBS, I think the the biggest people I did I did a Dylan album, I did a Bruce Springsteen album, and I did a bunch of Billy Joel albums that were probably the most famous artists. And then they were all you know there was Boston, which I hate. Um, but it's <laughs> and, but it's uh, uh, but it's an important. I mean, it's it lives on in the culture. There was, I had a friend um, named Marty Picar who was a copywriter at CBS, and he says, you know, when you die, your, your tombstone is going to say, design the Boston cover. And I've lived in horror forever. That <laughs> Might that may even be, be a picture on the tombstone of the UFO. <laughs> oh, God. At that time, CBS was huge corporate entity, and Atlantic was still, it was big, but it was an independent label. Did they feel like different places working at the two? They were totally different. Um, Atlantic was very much driven by Ahmet and Nesawi Erdogan. And Nesawi, I worked with directly because it was a very intimate place. And he was, he was in charge of the taste-making decisions that had to do with the corporation. So he saw he approved every al album cover I worked on. And he was lovely. He was a very elegant man. And he really cared about craft. And they were small, and they could not—they could not afford to spend more on album covers or hire big photo sessions. And, and they were—they—they they operated with a kind of economy, even though they were a part of at that time. They were a part of Warner Brothers, and CBS was big and corporate, and there were a lot of hierarchy within the company. But I had already learned to manage it. And um, when I worked in the advertising department at CBS, I used to design trade ads. Those are the ads that went into Cashbox and Billboard. And then occasionally you'd get to do Rolling Stone. And they would come out for every, every album. And the way the ad system worked is I was assigned a copywriter who was this person I mentioned before named Marty Picar. And we'd be given sort of a, a name of a recording artist and sort of a kind of a, a basis of the way they wanted to talk about the album, which usually meant breaking out in three radio stations or what have you. And then, you'd, you know, you'd have some sort of terrible shot and then you'd have a, something called a mini which was an album cover that was cut in half and made the title of the album really big on the top. And that was done in its own department, and they were really ugly as hell. And you were supposed to put them on the bottoms of the albums, and you wrote some kind of copy line on, about them, and you, they went into the trades. And the way they were approved was they were attached to a routing slip. And the routing slip was stapled to whatever the, the paper was that your ad layout was on. And in the first day, on Monday, you do it in the morning, and on the afternoon, it would go from the head art director to the copy chief to the guy who was the department head of creative services. And somewhere in there, it would go back for changes. So the next day, you'd change it, and it would go, and it would go past those three people who already made a change, and then it would go upstairs, and we'd go upstairs to product managers and producers and people like that. And invariably, it would have some more changes, and then it would come back downstairs, and by the time it came downstairs, because they were out to lunch or in meetings, it would be the end of the day, and you didn't do anymore. So then it would be Wednesday, the thing that was, the day it was due, and you'd finish it at about 7 o'clock at night and get it out to the trade. And then I realized, what was the point of doing anything at the beginning of the week? 
you might as well wait till Wednesday and do the whole ad because they'd be out of time. And that's when the work got good, I have to tell you. Great. Good. It's good to know. Useful. <laughs> I've been on those CCs, on those uh, art pieces that get sent around. And uh, it's a bizarre method in a big corporation. It had nothing to do with anything. It had nothing to do with the quality of anything or whether or not an audience would you know, perceive it or understand what it was. It was it was just a method they had that they adhered to. And it was like that when I started and it was like that when I left it. It just yeah. stayed the same. That speaks to what you said before about Tiffany. Probably at one point in time, when the record company started, it was built with few people and based on taste. And then as right. it gets bigger, it becomes this other thing. And people who are more concerned with commerce than art take over. And then things like, well, let's put the logo big on it because we're selling it. And the bigger the logo is, the better it's going to look. You know, the more chance we'll sell it if it's big. That's right. It's like that mentality of uh, people who don't understand what they're doing making these choices. That's exactly what happened at CBS. There was a, there, the founder was a guy named Goddard Lieberson, who was an incredible, tasteful man. And, you know, essentially they were, they were publishing classical music. And uh, then they had John Hammond, who discovered Billie Holiday, along with a myriad of other, you know, Dylan. I mean, the list is staggering. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen, and Bob Dylan. Stain, Bob Dylan. There was a, a very long list that I used to know by heart. And yeah. He was a really lovely, elegant man. Stevie Ray Vaughan. And they were... <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. A wide, a wide range oh, over totally. a long period of time. Even Benny Goodman. Yeah, incredible. He was one of, his, one of his first discoveries and then decided, okay, he's moving on. He was a guy who moved on. And his taste was just impeccable. And if you can take think about Goddard Lieberson and uh, John Hammond, it, what happened somewhere along the way is I think Mitch Miller became really powerful in the company. And he had a television show. And so the, the, the music taste became very mainstream. And, and there was a period, I think, where they were very late into getting into rock and roll. You know, I mean, they were, I think that wasn't until... Uh, the Fillmore concert where Janis Joplin played and got Monterey signed. Pop. And I think Monterey, Monterey Pop. Yeah. yeah, that was it. And it was it was amazing that the company had changed because it was a really middle of the road company after Goddard Liebeson had died, and then it became then it became a, a bit of a rock and roll company. Not so much, but they had foundational artists. You know, they had artists who were songwriters who were going to sustain periods of time, like Bob Dylan, like Bruce Springsteen, like Billy Joel. You know, they're sort of which was smart. And that was Columbia Records. That was that label. Epic Records was more like Boston. It was sort of, you know, it hits and then they would fade and they'd get the next guy. And that's how they operated that. Did you work in the Black Rock building? Yep. What a beautiful building. Eero Saarinen. Gorgeous. I love and it. And I, you know, and there was, that's the first time I saw Eames Furniture. You know, in that building. And Lou Dorsman, who was the design director of the whole company, uh, had uh, designed the elevator buttons. And there's a, a typeface called CBS Dido that's on all those buttons, and they are gorgeous to this day. The CBS logo was incredible. There's a book of all the CBS, the language of the CBS logo that's beautiful. Do all companies have that style guide of, of how to use what everything looks like associated with it so that you know it's coming from this brand? Well, we make them all the time. Every time I design something, we make them. And I think I think most companies do. I mean, most organizations when they when they buy design, if they if they know what they're doing, 
have to understand how they're going to execute it. And if they're a large company, though, they may have a they already may have a built-in in-house art department that you train and work with to begin to get them to understand how to work with the identity and the typography. And and uh, we were just just finished an identity where they had a very practiced in-house art department, and we worked with them, you know, in developing it. So so it's a collaboration. So they know they can execute it. I mean, these things really do matter. What was interesting about the record business floor, which was 10 through 12, those floors, is they didn't conform to CBS graphics. We did crazy stuff because we were the record industry. So we hung all kinds of stuff on the wall and the walls were metal. So you had to hang them up with magnets because that's the only way they, they stayed on the wall. And then sometimes somebody from corp- corporate would come down and write a little report that you had, you had messed up the wall. But, but the corporation on the whole was just very design conscious and, and very caring about it. There's something about design. In my case, I was a kid, I was going to NYU, and I was lucky enough to go to the Black Rock Building on a regular basis. And when I, from stepping down into the sunken area before you get to the lobby, you could feel like you're in a special place. And riding up in the elevator, you felt like you were in a special place. This wasn't an apartment building. This wasn't even an office building. My my aunt worked at um, Estee Lauder, and I would be in the in that building all the time. And it was nothing like BlackRock. BlackRock had a seriousness about it, an attention to detail that I'd never had never experienced before. And I loved it. And I felt like it was a spe- almost like a cathedral in a way. Yeah, it was uh, Bill Paley, who was the president of CBS. He had a, a second in command who was a design He's the person that hired uh, the architect. He was the person that decided it should be Eames Furniture. He was the person who oversaw Lou Dorsman uh, when Lou Dorsman was doing the the Dido CBS logo that's still on everything. I mean, really amazing. And uh, that was the philosophy of the company, and it was incredible to work there because it mattered, and you knew it was different, and those things you experienced were planned. So when you work in a place like that, I imagine it has to have some impact on your work of like, okay, this is real. Like this is the big time. I have to do my best. Look where I am. Uh, we, we were introduced, uh, like if a recording artist came and I actually had the position for a period of time is when Paul McCartney came and a few other recording artists were sort of checking us out to see if they they wanted uh, to sign with CBS. And they would, they would come down and they would say, well, go to our award-winning art department. And they were very, the company promoted it as part of the CBS image, that there was this, this was going to be this very classy operation, that we didn't do things on the cheap, that the people were highly trained professionals, and that the work was going to be at this very high level. And that was, that was implicit in the offer. And some people joined the company because of that. Beautiful. When you were working on album covers, did you get to meet artists ever, or was it more just dealing with product managers? No, the artists had contractual cover approval. You met you met with all of them, or that or they did it, you know, by phone. I mean, I I never met Bob Dylan in person, but I talked to him a lot when I did Hard Rain. He I I, I rubbed down some press type in the corner of the photograph, and it sort of looked not very straight. And I told him it would be straight when we typeset it. And he said, no, I like it that way. I like messy. I'll never forget that. And it ran like that. It's always been like that. I mean, there are things like that that happened that were wonderful. But you, you was, they had contractual cover approval and it, they would come sometimes individually 
usually with a, if they were coming individually, usually there was a project manager with them. Then there would be uh, wives, then there might be the manager, then there might be a whole band and the whole band's wives and everybody's, you know, favorite sidekick to come along and look at it. You never knew. You just never knew who was going to come. And it always worked. Some were more frustrating than others. You know, it really depended upon what their expectation was. I, I, I found some of it uh, kind of boring and repetitive because there were so many new artists that were continually signed and they were re very concerned about their photos on their covers and they, they wanted, you know, to be styled and makeup and hair and lots of money spent on this thing. And then they would be very stilted in the photo and it would be sort of hard to put together. And I remember on the Dream Police album for Cheap Trick, we had a, a, a lineup. They were dressed as police on the front and the back covers, and then they were in a lineup on the inside. It was an, one of those open-up packages. And I had, I had to replace different heads on different bodies. <laughs> Although, you know, there was, in those days, there wasn't Photoshop. So you had to take a, a dye transfer, and you had to uh, have the retoucher uh, sand it so we could cut it out and put it on the photo and retouch it so you didn't see the cut lines, but all the heads were transposed. Amazing. A concept for a cover, would it often come from an artist? Would it come from a designer? How did covers come to be? If it was a jazz album, it was usually me. You know, like I would come up with a, I would come up with an idea because it would be based on the title. The jazz artists tend not to be vain. They didn't especially want to be on the covers. I bought a lot of illustration for jazz, and that's where I really also became a type designer in a strong sense because I, I did when we particularly when we ran out of uh, money in the late seventies, I began doing covers just purely in type, and they were wonderful to work with the jazz artists because they they really liked the idea that I was going to be creative with their cover. And sometimes they came in with wives. Sometimes they came in alone. I used to work, uh, I think I did four or five covers for uh, John McLaughlin. Wow. And he, he was first Mahavishnu John McLaughlin when I met him. He came in like a Hare Krishna in the robes and the thing. And I actually did not like fusion, fusion jazz, and I hated listening to his music. <laughs> and one, he came in one day after... I don't know, three years of working with him where he was a Hare Krishna and he came in and he was wearing a leather jacket. He'd cut his hair and he's like one of the handsomest guys I ever saw. And I said, oh my God. And he said, I'm into materialism. <laughs> then he locked my, <laughs> he locked my door and made me listen to a full two record set he was putting out. <laughs> it was very funny. Wow. Stuff like that happened all the time. Wow. The, the, the fun of the record business. That was great. They were all over the map, though. I mean, that, that sometimes the artists were terrific to work with. Bruce Springsteen came in. Uh, I, I did Darkness on the Edge of Town. And Bruce Springsteen, you know, had the appointment and came up. And he pulled out these two Polaroids that were taken by his butcher. And he just sort of, he gave, they were great. I mean, they were really, they were, they were sort of beautiful. And, you know, the album was a darker album. And if you, you take, I think it followed Born to Run. And if you consider the difference in the two covers, one was sort of like, okay, this, this pop, wonderful guy who's on stage and moving around and playing with his saxophonist all the time and all of that. And the second one was, was a little deeper, and it was sort of easy to design because it had to be rough, you know, that you knew, you knew this was rougher, and it's not pretty, but it's beautiful. And um, I always liked that cover. I thought, it, And it was really him. He came in with the shots. How would you decide between um, a typographic cover, an illustration, 
or a photograph and do each of those things, whether it be on an album cover or in an ad, do they communicate different things? That's really a good question. I never quite had a handle on it. You know, they would say uh, I couldn't use illustration on a pop cover because that was the signal it was a jazz cover. Except for the reason it was a signal it was a jazz cover is I used to buy illustration for jazz covers just because I didn't have to do the shot of the recording artist and I liked that. I liked them and I thought they were, they were terrific looking and memorable. And the other ones looked more or less the same. So then it became defined by the company as a jazz cover, and then it became difficult to use. But of course, there was Boston, and there was uh, something that was called Heat Wave Too Hot to Handle, and I had used the same illustrator. I used the same illustrators on jazz covers. I mean, really, I really didn't see that that way. But I do think the public, actually, the public had its own rhythm about what they liked. You know, and when I think of, yeah. think about it, there was no market research. There was no testing in those days. Yeah. I just heard a story recently about Andy Warhol, and he became a commercial artist because at the time it was unfashionable in advertising to use photographs. So there was a lot of work for straight illustration of products, and that's what he did. But it wasn't out of choice. It was more like, well, that's what the market needed, and he was able to do that. That's how that works. You know, it's, it's funny because we're all, I think, at least the people I respect are really serious about their craft. You know, that, that the making of the thing and keeping it at a, at a high standard and pushing the industry forward is really our overall goal in doing it. So when you can elevate the expectation of what something can be, that's a breakthrough. And, you know, I, he, was, he was actually a terrific illustrator. Those drawings were great. And that lifted up that part. And then, of course, he became the way we know him, but that is, you know, not an unworthy uh, achievement. When you decided to become a designer, was it a popular thing to do at the time? No, most people didn't know what it was. How did it work out that you did it? I, I wasn't good at really anything else. I, I, my mother wanted me to uh, get my teaching certification so I could teach public school like she did. And uh, she thought, I remember when I told her I was going to move to New York and, and be a designer, she says, oh, Paula, you can't do anything like that. That takes talent. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was sort of. <laughs> so you were an abused child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did have that. When did branding become a big deal? Has it always been or is that a newer thing? You can't really brand something. That's, that's sort of silly in terminology because... A brand is not what you make it. A brand is what you make it plus the way everybody else perceives it plus everything that happens along the way. Like if you take uh, Chipotle, which is a, you know, it's a nice, nice fast food place and it can have nice graphics and the, the place, the, the food is reasonably okay for the price, etc. But there was food poisoning. So the brand owns food poisoning and, and you can't take that away. So, you know, if you say... You know, I branded Chipotle. That's sort of like branding food poisoning. I mean, you, you have to be, you have to be, I'm, I'm using an extreme yes, example, yes. but the assertion that this thing that you work as part of is going to stick forever and be this thing is, is just not possible because you can't 
predict. And I don't like to say that I do branding. I like to say that I'm an identity designer, a visual identity designer. And that what that means is that you're going to see something and you're going to associate it with the product and that that is going to be what that thing looks like. It doesn't mean that that's what the product is or becomes. It's just that's what that looks like, which is different. That's what uh, logos are. And you very rarely now design just a logo. You're usually designing a visual system. That, so you have the logo, and the logo can animate, and the logo can become large and small and exist in three dimensions and all of the things it needs to do to be recognized. But it's really, it's really a system. While we're on fast food, you designed the Shake Shack logo, and it really looks different than everything else. When you, when you see a Shake Shack, for a fast food place, it has an air of sophistication just based on the signage. How did you come to uh, work, work on Shake Shack? Well, Pentagram's office used to be on Ma Madison Square Park. We had bought a, a, a small building there. And um, Danny Myers is, was a, you know, a terrific restaurateur, and he had uh, two restaurants across the park. And he was on the board of Madison Square Park. And I did the identity for Madison Square Park because they brought it to me and wanted me to do it for free and told me if I, if I didn't want to do it, it was okay. And they'd bring it to the competing firm around the corner. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to get up and look at their logo every day. <laughs> so I had become involved with the park. And then the park began having art shows in the park and uh, really building up this incredible system of shows, exhibits, and events in that park. And one of the events was um, Danny Meyer put a taxi in the park and made a hot dog stand there because he always was inspired by his childhood in the Midwest where he, he remembered all these kind of fast food places where he felt he got a good meal. And he felt that was missing today. So his goal, if Danny Myers had a mission statement, he, I mean, he is a hospitality person, but his goal was to make a better fast food place, charge $2 more for the hamburger, and put brisket in it so it stayed soft, you know, that it didn't get hard like a, like a burger does. And he succeeded, it was great. But the building was a prefab building that was put together by a terrific architect. He was a postmodern architect who did all the best stores in uh, Virginia that had sort of buildings that came apart from each other. And what he designed was uh, this structure that was dropped in the park because it was prefab, so they didn't have to build it and disrupt the park. And they originally, I think they were, when it first opened, they were bringing water over from the restaurants, and then they, then they had the plumbing put in. And that was the first Shake Shack. And the, the structure of the building, which had a, an awning that came out, looked very what I would call modern, which is sort of a, a style from the late 40s that looks like streamlined. It was sort of the, the design of, of trains and the kind of things Raymond Lowy was it's like making. Post-deco. Right. Right. It was little, it was more modernist, but you there there were uh, there was a typeface that was introduced called Neutra which came out of that period. And you could tell it was a streamlined typeface because the middle bar on the E drops lower and it creates the sense of periodness about it. And I used that inside this band that was in the, the dropped-in architecture. And it, we, we, it said shakes and sodas, and, and they actually called that the purple cow. And I don't, rem I don't know why they named it that. Maybe they were gonna put something that was called the purple cow in there and never did. 
and it runs around Shake Shack, and then the, the type on the top is big. And uh, at first we did it without the icons in the park, and then Danny said he missed the neon of his childhood. So we couldn't put neon in the signage because we didn't know what neighborhoods would allow it, depending upon ordinances. So we just made neon icons. And then sometimes they were neon and sometimes they're not, but that's part of their packaging and their system. And we did it twice. We did it for the building. And then when he decided to make it a chain, then we, then we added the other, you know, the, the menu boards and all the other stuff that went with it. And it did look different from everything else. And they didn't call it fast food. They called it fast casual dining. It's a whole category. It's great. Yeah, I always loved it. It was fun doing it too, because it's wonderful to work with somebody else who's inventing something. Yeah. And that's what he was doing. What's it like being out in the world and coming across something that you've designed, you know, unexpectedly? What is that feeling when you're just out and about and there's a sign or a something goes by and it's like, oh, I did that. What does it feel like? Well, right now I forget. You know, like, I mean, there are 20 million city banks all over the place. I walk by them every day. I don't even think about them. You know, so that, that it's, it's strange. And, and the same with sometimes I, what I really like are the Shake Shacks in Europe because they're all designed differently which was part of our, our thinking in the place. And there's a woman who uh, came out of the architecture firm who built the original Shake Shack. And what she does is position the type on the building so it works with the architecture like the first one did. So they're all different, but they're all the same because it's the same thinking about it, but they're different sizes. They're different. Sometimes they're in neon. Sometimes they're built out of something else. Sometimes they have light bulbs in them. I mean, they, they're all over the place depending upon where they are. And so that when I'm in Europe, they even get more distinguished. Like there was one in Covent Gardens where it was barely branded at all, but it was all in the right places. Or you'll go to another, another place in London in, in a suburb, they have this enormous sign on a very little building. You know, and that's sort of charming. And I'm, I'm always, I always love seeing that, you know, because you don't know what it's going to be. But I don't, I don't have the same thrill about it that I did when I was much younger. What I do like is that I have uh, former assistants, particularly who go to old record stores and buy up my album covers. And then they sometimes I have to buy them back from them. Great. It's great. Have there always been logos and marks? Well, a trademark is a, is a, is a mark that stands by itself or can be combined with type. Like the swoosh, and, for example. Well, the swoosh is, is Nike's mark. And, but you know, it's not Nike. Originally it was with not Nike. Now you can, now you can understand it without words. And it, you know, it only takes 30 years to do that. You know, that they, it's built up with a, you know, sort of brilliant advertising campaign by Wyden Kennedy. So you associate with movement. It's all about sport. You look at the thing, you know what it means. So you don't need words. But corporate marks do because they may have, you know, initials and then you don't know what it is and you need it, you need it labeled. I mean, I think that marks that completely worked on their own were the Westinghouse logo with the dots on the W. And, but, but there was a whole type family for Westinghouse that existed with it that Paul Rand designed when he did the Westinghouse logo. And these, these things become iconic and you know what they are. When you introduce a logo, if it's a mark, you generally need type to express it. But a logo and a mark also, you don't need to have a mark. You can just have a logo, which is just the name, and the name is designed in some font. 
And that can be as understandable. Usually a lot of times they're initials and you look at it, you know exactly what it is and you know what the company is. And then you don't need the secondary type. You need the secondary type if you need to register it. And there are other things that look like that slightly. So there's the Apple Apple, and then there's the type that says Apple, and it says it the same way all the time. And sometimes right. they're together, but often separately, and either one works depending on the use, yes? At this point in time, you would recognize it on almost anything. You know, I mean, you could take, uh, you could take the Apple logo and buy a, a white box that looks like it's for lunch and stick the logo in the middle of it, and you would think that Apple started went, went into the food business. I mean, it would, you could, in fact, do that very easily. I mean, things have, they become iconic in use and fame and promotion, and it's, it's really, that's what you want them to do. That's the goal of it. Was there ever a time in the record business where the person who designed the album cover also designed all the advertising and everything that went around, everything around it, or was it always separate? Well, at CBS it was separate because that's the way the company was set up. Sometimes I would do a poster for an album I worked on. I did, I did some of that with Billy Joel for a while. But usually the departments were very specific and they didn't like that because it would take away it would take away the power of one of the departments because the cover department was always more powerful than the advertising department. So they wanted to make themselves felt as the only people who understood advertising. And, and that was all political. And I don't know if it mattered one way or the other, to be quite honest with you. I think if anything, the opposite. It's, it sounds like whoever came up with the creative feeling for a piece, the more involvement they had in the whole campaign would probably be a good thing, seems like, no? Well, it's hard to say because it really depends upon what kind of money was budgeted for it. If you had a, a major artist, very often they went to outside firms to do that sort of stuff because there was a lot of pushback on the, on the advertising department. Now, and there, I used to make a lot of promotions for record stores, which were posters, not ads. And I, there was a, a, a series I did called The Best of Jazz that was all constructivist design on craft paper and there were, I think, 20 albums in the series and that all the albums were packaged like this. The posters were in the store. And you saw that. That's what you were talking about. But that was really, really rare, largely because you couldn't even know what kind of space you were going to get in the record store for it. And a place like Tower Records uh, used to, the owner of the store actually used to select how much space something would get based on whether or not he wanted to hang it up in a store. So you, you just didn't know and that there would be promotional men from the field who would be going out and trying to get positioning and placements, but they were never seemed very successful to me in my memory of it. Who would set up uh, the photo sessions for artists? Well, the art directors did. I did that. You did that. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the job, uh, I think, was really, really management. Uh, you were setting up photo sessions. You were getting makeup and hair done. You were hiring sometimes a stylist for their clothing, we went through a series of genre photographers. Like there was this wonderful photographer named Bill King who was a fashion photographer and he would get, he would always shoot the performing artists in, in motion. And you can tell his shots right away from the 70s. He was very hot for a period of time. And Norman Seif and a pile of others who had huge styles that were popular and then sort of you, you transferred out of them. I, I, I actually had some of my best covers shot by Richard Avedon. He was, he was amazing. He took uh, Muddy Waters, and Muddy had come up into his studio, and we were going to photograph him. And Muddy was wearing a hat and a coat, and he wouldn't let Muddy take it off. He pushed him against a white wall, 
took six pictures and said, I have it. And he did. It wow. was gorgeous. Amazing. That was hard again. Amazing. Amazing. Beautiful, beautiful photography. The difference in type that's hand-drawn versus typeset or machine set. Tell me about the difference in what they look like, what they feel like, the perception of them. Well, you won't see that anymore. There won't, you, there won't be the difference in it. In the old days, you could because it looked like it was handcrafted and, it, and you, could see, you could see error. Now, and this is actually very exciting, almost uh, everything we design is a bespoke font. And it is because the computer software really has grown to the point that it perfects as you're, as you're doing it. And there's a, cor a course is, uh, called Type at Cooper at Cooper Union. And um, the art students go and they, they take the courses and they not only can draw complete alphabets, they can program them. So we compete with the type businesses because the type businesses sell licensing. And what they do is... Um, this is really, I, I think it was a mistake, but they, instead of being partners of the designer, they became competitors of the designer in that they want you to purchase the font for some use for a corporation and they sell the corporation a license and they have to rebuy the license every three years. So they're buying the same thing that they were using over and over again, where a type designer is more likely never to do that, an individual type designer, but to create a font and create one fee for the use of it and let the company have it. So the graphic designers who have be, who've become type designers, which are really young people starting out and they do great work. And then there are the, the older type designers who made foundries and started selling them and they're selling licensing fees. How do you find young design talent to work in the company? Well, I teach. So through students? Absolutely. Students and referrals from um, other teachers who have good students. That's generally how I found most of my staff. My, my uh, associate is a woman named Kirsten Uber. And Kirsten was my student. And then she worked as an intern at Pentagram for me. And then I sent her down to the public theater to be their in-house art director. And she had worked on the public theater for me internally, so she knew the public theater. And if you ever saw the film Abstract, she's the woman on the computer doing. And then she went to the wing when it was open, and which was designed by another Pentagram partner, Emily Oberman, and then came back to me during COVID because my, my uh, senior designer, who was also a student, <laughs> had gone to Apple. They stole him. I couldn't compete. I, I was, it was COVID. I had no one to know who to even know who to hire, you know, because we're all sitting in rooms by ourselves. Yeah. And then I re realized that the wing had folded and that Kirsten was available, so I, I grabbed her back. Great. That was great. Tell me the story of Pentagram from the beginning. Well, Pentagram is a really unusual design firm. It was founded uh, by three men in London, and it was originally called uh, Fletcher Forbes Gill, uh, Colin Forbes, Alan Fletcher, and Bob Gill. And they had an idea that designers should share profit and come together and not worry about who got the job that paid the most, but that the combination of talent would make everything elevate. And actually, it didn't work in the first year, and Bob Gill left. And then uh, an architect named Theo Crosby joined. And so they decided to make it Crosby, Fletcher, Forbes, always in alphabetical order. 
And architecture is on a different time frame because the projects take much longer. So that Thea would have very big projects, but they might, might go on between two or three years. And uh, the graphic designers are turning around things more quickly, but the fees are lower. And that worked all right. And then they decided to make an associate who worked for uh, Alan Fletcher a partner, and his name was Mervyn Kurlansky. But they didn't put his name on the firm because he had a big, long Jewish name, and they didn't want to put it on the firm. <laughs> and he was sort of annoyed by it. And then Kenneth Grange joined, and he was a product designer. And uh, he's actually Sir Kenneth now. He designed all of the uh, Kenwood appliances in Great Britain, the washers and dryers and things that everybody had in their kitchen that they grew up with. And he did that at Pentagram. And he became the fifth partner, and Mervyn got annoyed because his name wasn't on the firm. It was going to be Crosby Fetch. Fletcher Forbes Grange and no Kurlansky. So they went off, uh, I think, to a little partner's meeting and they had a fight about it. And uh, Alan was reading a book on black magic and he said, let's, let's name it Pentagram. There are five of us. So that's how the name came to be. And then that was stupid because the next year John McConnell joined and then there were six, but they didn't want to go through the name change. So I think part of the reason for Pentagram's longevity is the sort of moving ownership of it through different people who decide not to change anything and to use the formula for it. And we've never changed the logo since the logo was designed. And we have all these designers. You'd think, no, we don't want to touch it. It'll never, no one will ever agree. It's pointless. Right now, there are 21 partners. Uh, we have offices in New York, uh, in uh, London, and then individual offices, one in Berlin and one in Austin, Texas. And that had to do with just sort of happenstance of people who were in a bigger office or something moved around and they wound up on their own, but they, they still are in part of the system. What's unique is that the partners are essentially running their own business and sharing. And that the sharing is very important because it understands that Design business is not predictable. Certain industries go up and down. For example, somebody was working for a cryptocurrency company. Uh-oh. You know, things like that do happen. So, but, but collectively, you're, you're much stronger. And the likelihood that we're all going to go out of the business at the same time is not real. So that that means that there's a certain security in the numbers and that also we own the business and uh, we've developed stock in the business so that you don't get old and just be left with your drawing tables like so many designers were. But the, the significance of it is that if you're responsible and you run your business and you take on enough work where you're profitable and you also can control the work you do, you can do pro bono work or do things for free because you want to and you can grow your, your, your visual vocabulary and really do things that can elevate the profession, which I think is the goal. What year did you join? Uh, Nineteen ninety-one. It's been a good run. Thirty-two years. Incredible. Yeah. And how do new partners join? Do they get invited? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. You you are you, generally we know. You know, like you're watching other people's work, and then you might meet them socially because you're at a design conference, and you sit down and you say, "Gee, this is a terrific person. Their work is great." they'd be a good asset to the organization. 
sometimes it's somebody you've just worked with on a project and you've collaborated for some reason or another, or they bring a special talent like a product designer would, or uh, they were uh, the star of the New York Times being the, the art director of uh, the magazine, like our newest partner, Matt Willie was, you know, and you, you, you know them a little bit socially and you know who they are. And if you like them and they want to join, that's how that happens. Nice. And is the partnership mainly financial or is there any crossover creatively? Can you ask one of the partners that you think is particularly good at one style of something that's different than your taste and to be involved in something that you're working on or to give you an opinion? Do you ever do that? Is there crossover? Yeah, there's a lot of it. I mean, there's some, uh, my partner, Lou Kamen and Emily Oberman serving, I guess, as art director and designer. I've been doing Netflix for magazine for, for months and months and that they collaborate on an ongoing project. I've collaborated usually across disciplines, like somebody who doesn't do what I do, um, you know, like I'll, 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 I'll collaborate with a product designer, or I collaborated with my partner, Abbott Miller, on some exhibition designs where, he, where we, our talents really complemented each other. But I'll tell you, graphic design, like picking typefaces, and that's all, that, that stuff's very personal. That's really hard. Understood. You know that there, there, there are sort of areas where you do it very, uh, I think, easily, and other areas where you don't. Back to record design. From you designed album covers, and then were you gone by the time the CD came in, or were you still doing CDs? I left when the CD came in. I, I thought I'd better do book jackets. They were bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Oh, really. Yeah, yeah. I, to, I didn't want to design these little things. It was like somebody <laughs> shrunk the work. It's silly. It's funny. We went from 12-inch album covers to 5-inch CD squares to now a thumbnail. And it seems like there's an opportunity that no one has yet done. I'm still waiting for it. Where we went from this physical object that had to be a certain size. So that was the limitation. And that limitation right. got smaller. But now in the digital world, we have endless space. Mm -hmm. But it yes. seems like we're just still doing a thumbnail. It's, it's odd that no one has decided to create the world that's the visual image, or the moving visual images, whatever it is, for the collection. Well, I think that's not that difficult to do if you think about it. I mean, it may be that you download... Um you know, uh, a movie with it, or you download some kind of film or something that you, you can either project or that you can, you know, that you can look at your, out on your TV. I mean, what I've noticed is there are a lot of, there's a lot of record covers that are back. And it's because people seem to love vinyl. And I think part of the experience of vinyl was when you got the new album, you held it and you looked at it and you read the liner notes and you had this other point of relationship so you could really absorb it. But, you know, I, have my record collection on my iPhone and when I drive my car, one of my albums come up and I see my little cover and I'm still happy seeing the little <laughs> cover on the screen of the car. When you work for a legacy brand like New York Times or Coca-Cola or Saks Fifth Avenue, you're one of those big companies and you're refreshing what they do, how much obligation is there to stick with what's familiar and how far can you go in terms of making it new? Well, there's a lot of tweaking going on. The reason most people change a brand totally is something really bad happened. 
you know, they got like the, either there was some kind of corporate malfeasance or they made a product that was a failure or they're trying to change their image. And that's when that's when you may be hired to do something like that, which is really rare. In the magazine industry, all magazines will change their logos right before they folded. You know, that was sort of their last ditch effort to save the thing and then it would go down. A company that's evolving will sometimes tweak their logo to make it look more contemporary. Like if you look at Michael Beirut's work for Saks Fifth Avenue when he first did it, he got rid of a lot of the very florid stuff but stayed with the script because that was inherent in what the, the company looked like. And they've changed his identity since he did it, I think, probably about 15 years ago or 10 years ago. I can't remember how long. And, and they went to something even simpler so that there was this evolution down and it still looks very contemporary. The thing is that you want it to be recognizable. I don't think the ordinary, I don't think the public recognizes on a regular basis these kinds of tweaks. Sometimes if it's radical, it's not a tweak, but they, they accept them and they recognize the company because you don't want to lose that recognizability. If you change something drastically, it usually means the product's changed. The ownership's changed, the management's changed. And, you know, things can really elevate their identity by doing that, you know, tweaking something to a way that it, you think it's the same thing, but it's not, but it looks more expensive. I mean, that's, that's actually the thing that usually is happening, or more fashionable, or more hip, or what, more whatever it needs to be to work in its milieu. I believe it was part of um, Michael Beirut's work with Saks that the thing that blew my mind was he took the new logo and he cut it into uh, squares mm -hmm. and then rearranged the squares so that you couldn't actually read it. But the curves of the letters were so familiar that just by seeing a postage stamp center, you knew what it was. And it was, it was, I thought it was brilliant. Beautiful. The, the, the new management came and they got rid of it. Wow. Because they actually found it, I think, challenging. You know, that it, it has to do with the sensibility of the president of the company and what they're willing to ex accept. No, he did all the packaging with it. It was astounding. A really, really wonderful system because you could recognize it and yet it was modular. And you could, you could move it, you could put it, you could make it large, you could make it small, you could make ad campaigns with it. It totally worked. And then somebody just changed it. When you start a new project, how much research do you do in advance? Sometimes I do, uh, you know, a lot of research online to see what they are, see who their competitors are. And, and, and there's also, a, 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 we have a woman, a new business, who also gives me some foundation about that. But it's not really, it's not really, that's not really when I, I'm pitching for the project. When I get the project, uh, what, where the real research comes from is really interviewing and finding out everybody who's working on it and who, who had a hand in it and what the history is and, most importantly, what the politics are. The politics of the organization and how decisions are made is going to affect uh, the way you handle and do the job. There's no way around it because you, would not, you have to know who the key decision maker is and, and how to begin to organize how you're going to show and, and, and explain work to them. And if you're working bottom up, it's a disaster. You know, like you want to get to the, the ultimate decision maker first and work the other way around. Otherwise, you're going to be doing the thing two, three, four, five times and not necessarily making it better. So that's, that to me is, what do they do? What do they want to do? 
Where do they want it to go? And who, are, who is the ultimate decision maker? Those are the things I have to know the most of. And then, then things like manufacturing and other stuff that are te more technical and, and executional, which are never political, really. Have you ever pitched just one idea or is it always multiples? I have. And sometimes so I have to be just absolutely sure that's going to work. What I do is I, I have a, a philosophy. I always show three. And I want to show, I have to determine when I show them, I do more than three, but I have to determine that I'd be happy with, with any one of these that they take because I don't want to be designing something I don't respect. So I will generally show uh, one that is pushing a boundary and could be a little scary, one that is more classic to the area it's in, maybe more expected but done better, and one that's somewhere between the two. And I find that inevitably nobody picks the middle one. They pick one end or the other. Very rare that they pick the middle one. Interesting. I'm taking that as a good, I think that's a good sign for some reason. That feels like a good, that sounds like good news. <laughs> I, have, I have different strings of luck. Right, right now, I, there are a bunch of identities that I really am incredibly pleased with. You know, after doing this all these years, it's hard for me to think, oh, this is better than other work I've done. But it, they are. And I think some of it is that the level, either the level of client is better, the level of taste sophistication has gone up. When a client comes in, is it ever, here's a new product, we don't even know what the company is called, give us a name and make a design, or is it always, this is what we're called and you make the, the visual for it? I think I, I've been involved in naming processes and it's usually in doing the logo. So there might be, you know, sometimes we, we hire uh, consultants who are purely naming consultants because you gotta do a lot of research with that. So we'll, we'll come in with a list of names, I've never had a lot of success with that, to be honest with you. And most people make up their own name and they do, they do a better job. With Shake Shack was Danny Meyer's idea. He had that, he had that idea. He's, he'd been wanting to do it for years and that was his great. idea. It was a great name. Absolutely great name. The naming thing is, is good because it protects you from a lot of competition. And I would say probably the name is a consideration on 50% on of the startups. How have clients changed since you started till now? Tell me about the, the people who are the clients, expectations. I'll tell you what has changed. Time. When I, when I go back to the record industry, we were working with very limited technology. You know, that I would, I would produce a record with the, with the, uh, recording artist and to figure out what the cover would be, would be a period of maybe two weeks, not more than that really, because you, you wanted to get the album to the printer so it could be released on the schedule. So it meant that you would sort of decide in one or two meetings and then you would set up a Photoshop or makeup or hair, or you get an illustrator to do the project and it would, and, or you would design the typography or whatever you would do and they would come in and they generally made some comments and you might do some iterations to it. And then you would typeset it. And then when you typeset it, it would go out to a type house and it would come back and it would be these pieces of paper that you 
had to rubber cement down on a board that was called a mechanical. And the mechanical was, a, was the blueprint for making the album cover. And sometimes uh, you, had a pre you always had a proofreader read the copy, and then the proofreader would find errors in the copy, and there wouldn't be enough time to reset the type. So you would cut in things like exclamation points or, or commas or things that were left out by hand, and they would be put into the thing, and then they would be photographed and color separated, and that would come out and that would be the album cover. Now, I would say a process of that would take maybe close to a month with the sort of trial and error of the cover and then setting the type and getting the thing out. All of that time, except for the meetings with the client, who is the, usually the recording artist, was production time. Now we have all this equipment. We have all these fantastic computers and things. We can show things and demonstrate things. We can do retouching. You got Photoshop on the thing. We can set the type instantaneously. If the type is, is all the wrong copy, you can replace it in five seconds. But the things take even more time than they did back in the record days. And what do you think is taking up all that time? Clients making changes, I people's see. opinion. People come in, they don't, they, don't read the, they don't give you the right copy, they're lazy, they didn't do the thing. They had seven people look at it and they sent you the wrong thing. Or you had a whole meeting and you had gone through every single piece of, of uh, whatever it is you're designing on the identity and you show them and then they decide, oh no, no, we don't wanna do that color, we're gonna change it to this, we gotta see it this way. And you do the whole thing over again. And they never seem to run out of time. And because you have the equipment and they know you can make the change, why not? I went up to um, Sony Records, uh, I think, maybe, maybe it was 15 years ago, about something or other. And Sony, which used they, to be CBS Records. Now, right. CBS Records is now Sony Records. Your, it's your now old Sony company. Records. Yes. My old company. Yes. I went up there. As a matter of fact, they call me all the time because they get calls still for permissions to use some record, recording art, artist art. And they don't. I think they've assigned me the copyright because they don't, they don't know where, you know, they bought the company, but they didn't actually buy the art and they don't want to deal with it. So that's going on. But I went up there about something else and there were a hundred people working in the department. And when I was in the department, we made record covers, we made eight track tapes, we made cassettes. Sometimes there were operas with librettos and the department that I worked in, what I personally was responsible for was about 150 covers a year. And some of them came in from Nashville. I didn't design them all, but I designed a lot of them. And there were 35 people in our department in total. A lot of them were in the mechanical room, and they're the people that cut out the little commas and stuck them on the, you know, et cetera. So I uh, asked the art director at Sony. I saw this big department, and I, I said, uh, how many covers do you guys produce a year? And he says, about 150. And I said, but you have 100 people working here. I said, what do you do with the extra time? I needed to know what I was talking about. Wow. And then I realized they're making changes. Yeah, amazing. Tell me about your relationship with typography. I think uh, we moved from a verbal language to a visual language. And I think that people recognize type without reading it. That they can recognize, they can recognize a brand without reading the name of the brand. And that it it signifies something that they attach to it. I think that's so much what Nike helped us do in that absolutely brilliant 30-year campaign Wyden Kennedy did. And 
it was progressive, but the computer did it as well because they started to have to recognize typefaces. Like before, people didn't know what a typeface was. They thought it was the lettering. Oh, and they'd even say lettering. Oh, oh that's like the, 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 the alphabet or the, you know, they didn't know it had a name or that there was a, a serif one and a sans serif one and all of those things. Now they know all of that. And that it means that you can shorthand communication in a way you couldn't do before. And you can also abstract it. Like most of uh, the work I do now has a lot of animation. Um, there are digital signboards outside. You know, I do the public theater in New York City every year. And now it's all digital in the subways, even though there's still the posters. It's digital on the street. These things move. People recognize it. It's type in motion. And um, I'm amazed at what people see and how they know it, what they can understand. Tell me the difference between something still and something moving. When you're when something is still, it's easier for you to recognize the form of it. But once you rec the, recognize the form of it, you can stretch it and you can turn it at different angles. If you if you go to our website and you look at landmark theaters, you'll see that we did the logo for it as this L uh, that's dimensional, that's drawn in line. And then when we begin to use it with movie graphics inside, you know, like the, the person who's in the movie, the star who's in the movie, or some image from the movie, we're changing the angle and distorting it. And you begin to read it both as an L and as, as this other moving object, but you understand the object in motion. I don't think people were capable of doing that maybe 30 years ago because it wasn't common enough. I mean, there were always motion uh, graphics in, in movie titles, but they weren't as, as um, daily and as predominant as the kind of motion graphics that exist, say, on Instagram. The people are looking at their, at their iPhone every minute and seeing that stuff. So I think that that's a huge change in visual understanding. That's why I think people recognize type and don't really need to read it. Unless, of course, you're reading an article. I'm not talking about text type. I'm talking about things that are that are communicating a place or a service or something you need or want. You know that that kind of telegraphing of information. You you know you can you can recognize color and form on a on a sign that might be a gas station without actually reading it. You don't do that anymore. You recognize. Tell me about how you came to work with the public theater. This was really right around the time I joined Pentagram. I had, I had, uh, there was a book that came out called uh, New York Design. And before Pentagram, I had my own business uh, called Copel and Share. And I had bought pages to promote Copel and Share in this book called uh, Graphic Design New York. And I had done it before I was asked to join Pentagram. So the pages were stood and my, my work was in this book and I had posters in it and there was a, a Trust Elvis poster, which is sort of a classic now. And then there was um, a poster for a printing call company called Ambassador Arts, which is the big A was this thing I did that was a cut up A that was put together with Xeroxes. And they were side by side in the book. And George Wolfe, who was the director of the theater, saw it and thought, he wanted to change the graphics of the public because they had been these classic Paul Davis posters for years, highly recognizable, but he wanted to cleanse the palette. So he changed the identity. The public theater didn't have an identity. They did not have a graphic design identity, didn't have a logo for the, the place. It was 
known as the New York Shakespeare Festival or the Joseph Papp Public Theater, but it, it was never called the public. And that's what we actually did with it and changed sort of the spirit of the theater. And, and it became very New York, very loud and proud. And I've been doing it for uh, 29 years. Amazing. When I lived in New York, it was always loud and proud. I lived down not far. And uh, you really felt the feeling of this is something special uh, just based on I've never been in. I never went in. But just based on your work, it was ubiquitous <laughs> in my life and felt substantial. <laughs> <laughs> that's branding. <laughs> that's what that that's what that part is. It's graphic design branding. The thing is that that the product matched it. You know, I mean, they, they have been the inventor of so many terrific plays and writers and, and things that have gone to Broadway. I mean, whether it's Hamilton or Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk or, or you know, Hair back in the day. I mean, that's the basis of the theater and they, they, should be, they should be loud and proud. They are. What sector of business do you think has the best design? Where do you see the best design in the world? Oh, that's a great question. I think there, uh, there are fashion brands that have done incredible things and really set standards. And uh, I really admire what Burberry did recently by taking their classic brand that was tired and sort of futzy and then flipping it around so it looks as cool as can be. I mean, I just love that. I thought that uh, Louis Vuitton, their stores and the, like the, the sort of embrace of the pattern that they already had, fantastic. And I think that there has been a trend in fashion branding where good old-fashioned graphic design has pushed, pushed these brands forward in a way that I never saw before, like the, the uh, Spanish brand. I think they're Spanish or French. I'm not sure. Lueve. Do you know this, this brand? I mean, they, they, their stuff is so beautiful. It's so well-branded. And it's graphic design It's in, in the purest form. So I think that, that I think that's very terrific, and I think I wish it was in more mainstream brands that are sold in Target. I wish I wish that that would happen as well, and I don't see that. At first, I thought Target was terrific because it was a it was a cheap brand that made itself fun, but it seems to have fallen into a kind of a you know just a discount store category, and it it, it really should come back up. The tech industry is very erratic. I think that Apple is is sensational and that that was it, you know it began with Steve Jobs and seems to have 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 been channeled into the company in their attitude about their packaging, their advertising and and their product. I mean, I just think that they're they're stupendous that way. Microsoft less so and they were my client. And some of that is it's the difference between uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, that, that Steve Jobs thought he was a, a, a titan and he was an autocrat and he ruled and it was top down and it works. Top down does work if you've got sort of obedient forces, but there's a downside to it if you, if you leave or if the, the company rebels. Gates believed that his business ran better if uh, the engineers who designed the products ran the individual areas. So that, I, when I worked for them doing Windows 8, there were just, there seemed to be like kind of anarchy in that. And so when I worked for them, I started trying to create a system that would make things be collective, which worked a bit. Like the, the Microsoft logo itself comes from the center of this diagram I did that had to do with 
the relationships of products so that Windows 8 was, uh, they had this curvy logo with four boxes. And what it did is it put it into perspective because it was off this perspective chart and all the other icons were drawn off of that with the Microsoft logo and the window being flat. And that actually took force, but they didn't do the other logos that I drew. They just, because they don't, you know, they don't talk to each other. No, it's amazing how that um, accidentally becomes, because it sounds like it wasn't, you didn't set out to design that part of the design. You, you found, That's right. It, you found it within the design. Well, it was funny. When I, when I went there, they had this, they had a logo that was in, in uh, the, the colors of the Microsoft logo, and it kind of was curvy. If you remember, if you look at the what the Windows logo looked like, it had evolved originally. If I, I have somewhere I have this uh, chart of all the Microsoft logos uh, and the Windows logo. The first Windows logo was uh, an eccentric window. It was linear and it had panes that were uneven. Then somebody said, wait a minute, it's got to be in motion. This looks like it's too static. So they sort of made it at an angle, but the angle curved. Then they bitmapped it. So they had like bitmaps in it. Then they had this thing that looked like a flag. It had four, four logos. It was sort of at an angle, but it was a curvy angle, like it was a waving flag. And when I, when I uh, met with him the first time, I said, well, your name is uh, Windows. Why are you a flag? You know, like, I mean, I, I didn't understand the thing. <laughs> so that's when I thought, I thought that they didn't mean to make a flag. I thought what they were really drawing badly was a window in perspective. Because what Windows is as a piece of software is an ability for you to see. You know, you see through the window. And that, that's an appropriate name for that product. And that the difference between Apple and Microsoft as companies is Apple is top down and Windows is your own perspective. So that it made sense to put the window in perspective. And that's why I did the chart. And that was the, that was the whole invention of that, of that thing. They changed for Windows 12, and they sort of brought back in this very dimensional thing that moves that has light coming through it, and it's much, it's very strange. It was like, fine. <laughs> I think, I think it was fine. I think they should have just left it alone. But they, they didn't, but it's still around in its own way. And the center is the logo. I don't know who did, I don't know who actually made that the logo, because I was long out of there. I think I designed that in, I guess, 2014, 2012, something like that. I'm asking you this question as a partner in Pentagram. How do different designers approach the same project? You can use examples if you want, but think about how would the different people come to find a way into to solve a problem and how different would the results be? We all have our own style and that there's the part of the process that is Getting the client to learn how to see that you have to, before you can even work, you sort of have to set the stage for what's plausible when they explain what they think they need. And sometimes they think they need something and then you actually need something else. So you have that analytical part of dialogue. Michael Beirut can talk any, anybody into anything. He's, he's also, he's just a great salesman in, in, a, in, a, in the nicest sort of way. And um, he makes sports analogies and he, he, he sort of brings things into a language that his clients understand. I could never do 
explain things the way he explains things. So I would act more like a school teacher. And I sort of, I sort of would show them things and explain why one thing works and one thing doesn't, which is not as compelling, I think, as what he does, but I do it in the most compelling way that I can. And then I think they are two very distinct ways of doing it, and everybody else is somewhere in the middle. And they're, they're all connected to their own personality and the way they want to explain things to clients. Like, for example, my partner, Natasha Jen, is very analytical and very organized. And she always makes like these very succinct diagrams that explain things to people very clearly, where I would be uncomfortable doing that because my mind doesn't work that way. And you have to find your individual basis of doing that. Then you sometimes, sometimes if you partner with somebody, you may be doing it collectively. Also, I do another form of work, which is environmental graphics, which is over, you know, they're, they're projects that take a long period of time and don't require the same kind of explaining and selling because they're in an industry that is more about building. In fact, they're more about craft in many ways. They're more like rec- the way we did record covers, you know, that if you persuade somebody to looking at, looking at something and they think they want to make it and, they, and you cost it out and they find out they can make it, it may take four years to build, but it looks exactly like the Photoshop rendering you showed them. Whereas when you do a piece of graphic design, you might start out with somebody and it comes out totally different at the end because of the client relationship. Give me an example of environmental design. Okay, you've seen the public theater. Yeah. There's the, you've seen the building. There's the outside of the building and the inside of the building. There are graphics all over the place, and they're, they're built into the, into the walls, and they're the logos of the, the place, and there are objects there, and there's an awning that comes out, and there's a big word public on the top of the awning, and it's signs. It's signs and uh, spaces. And uh, in New York City, I've done Symphony Space, which has sort of complicated graphics, New 42nd Street Studio. There are a lot of them in different places. And they, they exist in the insides of lobbies of buildings. Um, there's a terrazzo floor that I designed that's in a, a hotel in Fort Lauderdale that's 8,000 feet. And it's a map of Fort Lauderdale. And you wow. walk over it and stuff like that. That's, you know, that's part of the, the, the genre. What is the relationship between design and architecture in general? Well, architects tend to be my clients. It really depends upon how you're brought into the project. I met uh, Jim Polshek, who who owned a a design firm that was Polshek Partners that has changed its name to Ennead later when he became old and was retiring. And they, uh, they're an architecture firm that do a lot of wonderful things like museums. He did the, you know, they did the Museum of Natural, uh, the uh, Earth, Center for Earth and Space at the Museum of Natural History in New York City. That was probably the first big building I signed. And I met Jim on, in the lobby of the Public Theater many years ago. And, and uh, this was before we did the, the, the major renovation of the lobby, but he had to put up something quickly because George Wolf had hired him at the same time, or he was there at the same time I was doing the new graphics. And he saw them and he liked them because they were sort of constructivist and he likes that period. And he says, I know, let's just cover the place with this stuff. And we sort of hung things on the wall and made banners. And that was the first Amazing. time I was an environmental graphic designer. So that's, how, you know, it happens in connection to a place because it's part of the personality of it. And uh, it's very exciting work. It just takes really long. Tell me about the maps. For a long time, I 
did these kind of sarcastic and fractured paintings of information that were small that I did uh, for New York Times pieces. Like I made a, a diagram of a blog thread or um, I did a, a, some kind of information about Bill Clinton's, uh, I don't know, whatever was going on with him at the time, you know, the Monica Lewinsky stuff and his America and who supported him and who didn't. And they were political and I got used to do it in newspapers. And somewhere, I think around 1998, I think it was when I started working for Citibank and I was really just doing straight corporate work for like a, a period of about six years with some other work that was more interesting. And I thought, you know, maybe that stuff that I paint, the little things that I paint for the newspapers would be good if it was really big. So I did a painting of the world. I went up to, we have a house in Salisbury, Connecticut, and there's space. And I unrolled uh, some canvas and I painted the world and I put all this information and it looked, you know, and it was, I, I painted the world inaccurately and left things out and didn't care and wrote my version of everything. And that was my painting. And then I began to do them even bigger. And as I was doing them, I thought, well, maybe this is really a thing. Then I had a friend who um, had a gallery and he told me to bring my paintings in and show it to the gallery, which I did. And they gave me a show and it was a success. So I've been doing it ever since. We make prints of the paintings and uh, we sell the prints as well as the paintings. And uh, recently I was commissioned to um, paint a whole Porsche, a 1977 Porsche. And uh, it's covered, it's a United States map that's it's a sort of upside down going around the car because if I, one side of the car is, you know, the Canadian border and the other side of the car goes down to the bottom of Texas. So it's sort of wrapping it. And it's in an exhibit I'm having uh, actually in Munich, in a, in a museum called Pinakothek uh, Modern, and uh, it's all my typography, including the car. Incredible. Are you going? Yep. Beautiful. You talked about the size of the pieces getting bigger. Talk about the size of art and why size impacts our relationship to the pieces that we see. Well, that's a really interesting question. I, I'm not quite sure how it works. I mean, the thing is that I know what happened with my own paintings is that people seem to marvel at the scale of the, of the, the painting in relationship to the density of the information. And the thing is that the information is often, <laughs> you know, it's mostly ina inaccurate. I mean, I saw somebody, there was a, a giant painting I did of the United States. It was at the Cooper Hewitt for about six months. And there were two men, I walked in one day, and there were two men describing a road trip they took. And they were sort of navigating themselves across the country on a road that was in the wrong spot. You know, <laughs> and, and it was sort of, you know, it wasn't deliberately in the wrong spot, I just messed up. They're sort of right. You know, the information is sort of right because it's, a, it's generally correct. You know, it wasn't like I was drawing a road from Taiwan in the middle of the United States. It was just that I had the wrong route number on it, you know. And yeah, that, that was probably the road he took, but not the route number. They're poetic maps. <laughs> They're opinionated also. They're very political mostly. And I get my frustrations out that way. I had done a, a map that was completely low. I had the last, the last total show I had where I was doing one thing throughout. It was really repainting the United States a million times with all kinds of demographic information. 
And, you know, I am very politically obsessed. You know, like, I mean, I just, uh, I am a news junkie and I am really interested in how Americans think and what their value structures are, which I don't understand anymore. And I keep trying to find some commonality, but I find that just different parts of the nation are really, really different when you do the research. And it, it is, how we're, how we're one nation is, is, I guess that's why there's Europe. Maybe that's how that happened. Maybe they were, the United States is where Europe was when it all became different city-states. I don't know. Could be. How has your relationship to design changed over the course of your life? I, you know, I started out not knowing what being a designer meant. And um, I learned it on the job. And I began to find my own method of communicating and, and building on a language that I see people respond to and use. And I, I love it all, I have to say. I love the things that I do that are personal, but I also love the things that I do that are really public. I, don't, I never tire of finding out somebody saw something or was influenced by something or that it was out there and that I could make that happen. And I think we're all very lucky when we can do those things. It's amazing that we get to make creative things and people like them and it ends up being our job. It's, a, it's wild. It's a wild that the world works the way it does. No, I think uh, the, the notion to, to be able to love what you do is so fantastic. So many people don't. And um, I, I find that I appreciate it more as I, as I get older and, you know, find myself not feeling like I'm repeating myself and not feeling anything but kind of limber in it. And that's great. Great. How important is it to break new ground and create something new? How important is newness? I think newness is relative. You know, there's... There are no real, I'm trying to think of, of like the last great originator. You know, like I think, you know, Vincent Van Gogh made something that nobody was making. That's new. I don't think we, <laughs> I think it's very difficult to do that now because there's so much. What I do think is that you move things forward and you, you make discoveries, usually through mistakes, that you're, 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 Doing something and you've made a terrible mistake and you stop and then you realize there's a possibility and then you can then you can play with it and move it forward and sometimes you you stretch a form and that that's really what I, I'm always trying to do is stretch the form. That's an interesting thing about mistakes and accepting mistakes. Some people's egos wouldn't allow the mistake to be the good thing. So we have to be really open-minded to accept the mistake as better than what we were trying to do. Do you think that's hard for people, really? Well, I think it's, there I mean, are some people who, if it doesn't feel like it's coming, they have the idea. It's, for, for some people, it's more intellectual. They have the idea and they want to execute the idea. And anything that gets in the way of executing that idea is not good. <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, that's actually self-defeating. For sure. I, mean, I remember my- We're in the same boat. Years ago- <laughs> Years ago, Michael Beirut said to me, he was working on something, and he said, I have this really idea, but I can't get it to work. 
And I sort of looked at it and I said, maybe it's not a good idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's sometimes, sometimes you think you do, but that actually is not, it's not going to work for you because there's probably something fundamentally wrong with the thinking in it. Like or it's, it's creating an impossibility that's either going to be too difficult. I mean, in the end, I think all our best work actually should seem so easy because that's, that's the hard part yeah. is making it Almost making it as if easy. it happened itself. Exactly. Yeah. It should have designed itself. Tell me about timely work versus timeless work. Everything is done in its own time. I mean, you can't, I, there are things that, there, there are things that never change, there are principles that never change. Usually if something isn't working, it's because the scale relationships aren't right. You know, there's a, a, a kind of a dynamism that's existed as long as people have been pushing paint on paper or making anything in, in some form, because it's the relationship. If you make, if you uh, do something that's very extreme or something that's very withheld and quiet, they're going to work. It's the middle that's the bad place. You were part of the design commission for New York for a period of time. What's that like? It's amazing that it exists. I'm happy that it exists. What were the kind of things that you guys would do? Uh, it was, uh, uh, actually, this was, Bloomberg changed the name of it. It used to be called the Art Commission. He changed it to the Design Commission. And it used to be a commission that was not run by professionals. It was uh, sort of uh, contributors to political campaigns that got appointed to give somebody a nice position in New York City. Theoretically, the role of the committee, and it's called a commission, I was commissioner share for a wow, period of cool. six years. Cool. So I, I like being commissioner. You were, you were looking. <laughs> that was like, Why not? There's another si sidebar. Yeah. If not you, who? <laughs> <laughs> James Polshek uh, invited me to be on the commission. He was the head of the commission. And um, it was, uh, there was a, a wonderful engineer named Guy Nordstrom, uh, another uh, wonderful fine artist named Brian Kin, Signe Nielsen, a landscape architect, was on the commission. And we were all design professionals. And our job was to look at new buildings and uh, renovations and things that were in on New York public land and uh, on uh, public property and to make sure that these things were designed well and would serve serve the city. I mean, it was, and Bloomberg was, was a design mayor. I mean, I, I, when I designed the High Line, he had just become mayor and he was the one that made that thing go, wow. which was great when we, wow. were, when we were working on the High Line back in the day. And uh, he, we actually, Rob, I was working with Robert Hammond and Joshua David who started a thing and I did their identity. And then there was a book about it and the book, needed somebody in politics to uh, sort of sign on it. And they had Martha Stewart and they had Mike Bloomberg, but they were both sort of business people. And then 9-11 happened and Bloomberg was elected mayor. And then all of a sudden it was, we pulled the book off press and put it back and it was Mayor Mike Bloomberg and he had endorsed the thing. And then all of a sudden all city government began moving to, to make this thing become a real thing. So beautiful. And he did so much incredible uh, work with parks. He appointed a great parks commissioner, and her name was Betsy Smith, and she's now at the Central Park Conservancy. And they, they really were rebuilding parks all over the city. And uh, the Design Commission was there to look at things like that, and also uh, things like bus shelters. And uh, at that point in time, the new bus shelters were developed. And 
the goal was that New York was full of terrific designers and architects, and they should be getting the jobs, and they should be doing the work, and the work should be enhancing and pulling up New York. So that we would sit, we would go down, uh, there would be about three-hour sessions for a morning once a week. And the people who were working on the projects and the, the city agencies that were supporting them would come and they would present to the design commission. And it was our job to uh, approve or to recommend and then approve or, or to try to help these things get better and move through the city. It wasn't about necessarily saving money. It was really about, about the design of these things. And it was really, really interesting. And I think I was lucky because the commission was so terrific. And we, we, I think we did a lot to, to make things better. Sounds beautiful. I'm happy you got to do that. It's great. <laughs> it was great. It was fun. We haven't spoke since the Creative Act was released. And I just want to thank you for helping it be all that it is. And uh, people seem to like it. And the design is working. And uh, I just want to thank you for being so helpful and making something that people seem to resonate with. Well, you know, they were your choices, Rick. You're really the, you're the star of that book. I was just the facilitator. But you, you made great choices. I mean, it's interesting. it was interesting to me working with you on it because you made choices I would not have made. And you made them from a very different place than I would probably be coming from. I mean, the book is is interesting because it's very classical, but it does have a contemporary edge. And that, that that's sort of the terrific thing about it. I probably would have gone more, much more contemporary with it, but it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have had the richness uh, that was brought to it by the classicism in it. Cool, well, thank you. And uh, great seeing you as always. Fantastic, thank you, this was fun. Mm-hmm.